Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today has been one of the most sought-after instructors in the world the past 40 years because of his unique integration of martial arts, police, military, bodyguarding, and personal protection blend of styles. He's a ninth-degree black belt master and founder of the World Martial Arts Centers in 1970 and the World Martial Arts Federation, which is an all-styles martial arts system and rank certification. His World Martial Arts Center is one of the longest-standing, most well-respected martial arts centers in the world today and spans more than four decades, training more than 40,000 students and turning out more than 700 black belts. His studio videos have been featured in Black Belt Magazine numerous times, as well as other international publications. He's been personally trained by Mr. Chuck Norris for more than 30 years and is a seventh degree black belt in the Chuck Norris United Fighting Arts Federation. He also holds high ranking belts from several other world renowned organizations in Jiu Jitsu, Judo, Taekwondo, Tung Sudo, and Aikido. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Danny Lane. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm glad we're able to do this. So what we like to do, how we kind of start the show, we, we go back into the past, and I want to talk about that that first spark. What, what was that first spark, that first interest that led you to to start your martial arts journey? Well, actually, you know, I didn't know anything about martial arts or the word karate or anything until I went into the uh, Marine Corps in 1968. Uh, you're coming from West Virginia, and there wasn't any karate studios, and it wasn't prevalent in that area. It wasn't well-known, so my first taste of any kind of martial arts, and I really didn't know it was called martial arts, was in the Marine Corps boot camp in uh, Paris Island in 1968. And it was called hand-to-hand combat at that time, but what they were teaching us primarily, the hand-to-hand was uh, jiu-jitsu that I guess the Marines learned in World War II in Japan or and brought it home, but... Um, you know, how to take care of yourself, sweeps, takes down, chokes, uh, things. And then we learned how to use the bayonet and, uh, you know, our sidearms and things like that. So that was my first taste of martial arts. It wasn't something I chose to do. It was something I had to do. So then what made you, after the Marine Corps, what made you seek it out and want to continue it? Well, it's, it's, it's a very good question. First of all, you know, I used it. If you read my book, Some Gave It All, you threw the fire of Vietnam. There's a lot of scenes in there where we went hand-to-hand when our units were run over uh, and overrun by the uh, Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army, and uh, we had to go hand-to-hand. So I've actually had to use it in real self-defense situations. When I come out, I went within a month when I come out of the Marine Corps, I went into the State Police Academy and to become a cop. So jiu-jitsu was also taught in the uh, State Police Academy. So, okay. you know, I found that, you know, being was fairly small at that time. I was 5'10", and I was 180, but, you know, when I come home from Vietnam, I was only 125 because of the malaria I caught. And wow. The uh, the uh, heat over there and the extreme, uh, you know, toll it takes on you living in the jungle for about a year. So I was. it took me for a long time to get my strength back. But anyway, you know, they taught me that. And um, I went through my rookie year as a cop in 1970. I guess as luck would have it, or, or as, you know, we're all on a God-given path, I guess. It's predetermined, and I've always thought that, that 
you don't really go looking for things. Things just come across at, at, at certain times in your life. So about a year after I was a cop on the street, I walked into a pizza shop that, of a guy that I knew before I went into the Marine Corps. And sitting there was a Korean man. So he introduced me to him, and he was a Korean master of Taekwondo from Korea. I'd just been sponsored to come over to our town and um, teach Taekwondo. We talked uh, a little while, and he spoke broken English. And um, he asked me to come by his studio. He had just opened it, and I become one of his first students, and he started teaching me Taekwondo. And I, you know, it was kind of boring because he would teach me the same move, and we do repetition after repetition after repetition. <laughs> yep. And one one day he went to lunch, and he said, "You do the high block. You do high block, Danny, while I go to lunch." And so, you know, I was afraid not to be doing it. When he came back, I wouldn't even yell about them. And uh, he come back, and you know, I saw him coming indoors, so I started doing the high blocks again. I was really <laughs> bored, but he kept saying, "Well, repetition makes perfection," you know. And giving me those uh, type of uh, antidotes. So mm-hmm. it wasn't long after that that I was on a call of this girl screaming in an apartment. This guy was, I guess, cutting her up with a knife. And I went up to the back stairs of this apartment. I beat on the door with my nightstick. And finally, he opened it. As soon as he opened it, he tried to stab me with an overhand uh, thrust. And he had a kitchen knife in his hand. And I did that high block perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Nice. But I didn't know what else to do, but I poked him with my knife stick, and then I got a hold of his hand like I'd seen in a movie, started beating his hand on the wall, and finally another cop came in and started punching, punching him in the belly wow. until we got the knife away. So that was my first uh, use of uh, martial arts you know, in a real situation outside you know, the combat I saw in Vietnam. So I said, well, if that works, just think if I get really good. Mm-hmm. what it would do and i found out you know brian i started he finally gave me the key to the studio like i said he just first opened it and he trusted me so when i would get when i would get off midnight shift at seven in the morning i would go to the studio and work out and i found it was a really good relief uh, for the anxiety i had and post-traumatic stress that i was feeling and suffering which i didn't know what it was called and what was going on but i was still anxious and you know, coming out of the combat zone in Vietnam and coming right onto the streets of, uh, of being a cop in just a few months, I didn't know what was going on within me, but I, I had all this anxiety and everything going on. So it was a really good therapy for me to uh, to work out. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I know. I know. When first time I had an instructor give me a key, it's such a turning point when you can just go in there whenever you want to and, and work on technique and hit a heavy bag or whatever you need to. It's so it makes such such a next level for your training. Well, I had to clean the studio. So if I had the key, I had to, you know, uh, dust the, the floors and clean the mirrors, yeah. take out the trash and all that stuff. You know, I was kind of in boot camp again. <laughs> but it was but, worth yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I've been to three boot camps, the Marine Corps boot camp, the State Police Academy, and also uh, in the martial arts where I did that. It was like a Miyagi type thing where you go in and, you know, but you have to clean and everything and the windows. And, but I, you know, I enjoyed it. It taught me so much discipline. I, uh, Stayed with Master Kong, Sako Kong. He's really, he was a world champion in Korea. And we were together for almost nine years. Oh, wow. Okay. And I went to Korea with him. I fought on tour over there. And he was, you know, making real proud of me. Let me get a real good taste of it. But I decided to go into kickboxing and open tournaments and things. And, uh, you know, they don't like for you to go outside their organization a lot of times in, in competing and learning and studying from other people. So my journey wasn't over. So I uh, went into open uh tournaments and I was seeking you know out other people and trying to push myself to another level so that's what I did and I ended up meeting Chuck Norris in 1980 and he invited me to um, Torrance California to work out with him and his brother and all the people that he was doing movies with at that time he just done the uh, octagon at that time and Chuck Norris. okay and I definitely want to talk about Chuck Norris but I want to back up a little bit what what drew you to the competition aspect of martial arts I know it's it's not something that not everyone gets into some people do it. everyone does it for different reasons what what made you want to compete well, that's a really good question, too. Uh, 
the uh, Taekwondo organization here in the uh, the east out here has a lot of tournaments. Uh, you know, masters would hold tournaments in their cities all the time. And he was affiliated with Kiwon Kim in D.C., who is a senior grandmaster here uh, of all the Tongsu people that come over from Korea. But I mean, there was tournaments almost every weekend. So even though I was working midnight, stuff, I would uh, change shifts with somebody and or take a day off or something. And I started even as a yellow belt competing in these tournaments. So as I went through the ranks up to black belt, and I actually made my black belt with him in, in a year or maybe a little less because I was training so hard, mm-hmm. so often. And I passed every test and I did everything they put me up to. I, I went to the tournaments. I won uh, or placed second or third. And it was just something, even though I was arresting bad guys on the street as a cop and i had these physical confrontations out there it was a challenge it was i guess that um, adrenaline rush that i jaunt of uh, being in competition especially one-on-one so it just kind of just happened over a period of time it wasn't anything i planned okay but once i started getting into it but you know you know competition is not easy you know you have to pay your dues sometimes you lose and you learn those losses and I was pretty good, you know, right up to the black belt. When you get your black belt, you're stepping in the ring with people who may have been a black belt for 10 or 15 years. So you're not going to go into a black belt competition when you're um, a brand new black belt. And I, I went almost four years without winning the first in black belt because you had to wait till the other guy stepped down. You had to learn to get better and you had to learn by that. So everybody always thought about fighting. So I, I, I really concentrated on my uh, forms. Oh. Very well, too. Okay. So I got really proficient in terms. I'm thinking, well, if I can't win in fighting right now, maybe not all these great fighters are doing forms. So I jumped over into the form con- competition, and the masters noticed that I had good technique, and I started winning and placing first. Then they started calling points for me in the in the, in the uh, sparring. So <laughs> nice. one led to the other. So oh. from se- 72 to uh, early 75, I really didn't place in the black belt division. And I started winning kata and what well, they call it forms in Korean but, mm-hmm. uh, or, or young. And then, then I won 75, 76, and 77, the U.S. Open in, in the middleweight division. I won the grand championship. Wow. I think two of those years. So one led to the other. Okay. And then during that time, did you, did you get into teaching at that time or did that come later? I actually started teaching after I started getting uh, the key to the studio in 1971. Wow. He was uh, teaching he had another school and he wanted to open a, a third school. So I started teaching even at a, at a early, early age before I got my black belt. So I started teaching before I got my black belt. Then when I got my black belt, I totally took over the studio in my hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. And then it wasn't a, a year later, I opened a school in Ashland, Kentucky. And then another year I opened one in Portsmouth, Ohio. So he and I had six studios going at one time. So I'm even though I was a full-time cop, I was still teaching and running three studios uh, for wow. a good number of years. Okay. You said you met Chuck Norris at tournament. Now, had he already built up that reputation? You, you knew who he was by that time? Yeah, I knew who Chuck was through Black Belt yeah. Magazine. Okay. I don't okay. think I... I may have seen some of these movies like Breaker Breaker and Good Guys <laughs> Wear Black. I think yep. the third one was The Octagon. But I was... Um, traveling in virginia beach and i knew chuck uh i'd read in black belt magazine where in virginia beach they had the first million dollar karate studio it was run professionally and i think black belt magazine did a whole uh article on that and so when i was in virginia beach i stopped by the studio to look it over and introduced myself to bill maher who was the owner and uh it financed that fantastic studio with all kinds of different uh, mats and one-way windows where people could sit and watch their children and so forth. I mean, it, it made a lot of money, but we started talking and got to know each other a little bit. He said, well, give me your number. I'll, I'll tell Chuck, uh, give Chuck your number. And I left away, you know, going from talking to Bill and I'm thinking, well, you know, he's not going to give my number to Chuck. Chuck will never call me. So 
about two weeks later, I got a phone call. And he said, is this Danny? And I said, yeah. He said, well, this is Chuck Norris. How are you? And I said, yeah. I'm thinking somebody's pranking me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he invited me out to uh, California to work out him with uh, him and the guys. And they're in a torn studio. I think he was getting ready to do um, the Octagon. I'm thinking which one it was. But that was in 1980, October 1980. So we got really close and we worked out for a week together. And it wasn't long. I was, he took me into his system and uh, wasn't long after that, I was a regional director. And then I was appointed to the board of directors and then the national training instructor for him for quite a few years while he was out doing a lot of movies. Okay. How, how difficult was it? I know it's, you know, they're both Korean styles, you know, Tung Sudo, Taekwondo, they're, they're basically sister arts. Was it a pretty easy transition going from one to the other? No, actually the, um, Master Kong taught Tong Sudo. Oh. So I was already doing the Tong Sudo form. So, I mean, they were exact, exact same forms okay. that uh, Chuck used in his American uh, Tong Sudo system. So, no, there wasn't any changeover. Though. It was a little bit more Americanized. And we also integrated Judo and Jiu Jitsu and, mm-hmm. and Aikido along the way. So, I was ready. I was right in the initial part of Chuck developing what's called his United Fighting Arts Federation where we united all the different arts into one system. So forth. so he was developing that, and we were de- developing our own forms for that, too. So I was in the initial phase of him developing what's called now the Chuck Norris system. Right. And so I was uh, very fortunate to be able to get in at that time. While you were training with him and working with him, did, were, did you continue to be a police officer at that time, too? Because I think you, were, you did that for, what, 15 years, I think you said? Yeah, I was. Um, I left the police department in '85. Chuck called me and wanted me to come up and you know be in my first movie with him in the uh, Code of Silence in Chicago. And I'd, I was resigning from the police department about that time. I did that because of a uh, murder case I'd worked uh, against some mobsters and some dirty cops. And after three hung jury over three and a half years, it wore me out. And plus things were happening that they were trying to retaliate against me for trying to take some of them down. And, you know, these monsters you just don't take down without retaliation. So, right. especially the dirty cop was within our own department. I take, he was a high-ranking officer. They'd been dirty for a long time. In fact, in a new book I had coming out, and you could find it, he was affiliated with Jimmy Hoffa. Wow. He got indicted on one of Jimmy Hoffa's uh, cases in Nashville, Tennessee, for jury tapping, uh, tampering. He was down there um, wiretapping hotel phones, phones and uh, some of their rooms. And also they were calling up some of the jurors that was on the panel. They were trying to persuade him not to find him uh, guilty. I mean, I have all the newspaper articles from New York Times and Nashville and so forth on. It's coming, it's coming out in my, my new book coming out next. And that's why I left the police department because I had... Karate Studio, which was the Chuck Norris studio at the time, and, and I wanted to get in the movies, and I kind of wanted to get out of police work, so I just took an early retirement and come out before I did something I didn't want to do. Right. So how, how many movies did you end up doing? Well, you know, I did The um, Code of Silence, uh, Invasion USA, Hero and the Terror, have, 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 have a knee replacement on uh, the movie Sidekicks. And all the ones, all the ones he did in um, the Delta Force and all the uh, you know, missing in action movies he did overseas. Mm-hmm. He did in the Philippines. He did um, Delta Force, I think, in Israel. So most of all of them that he did with Canon after that, they was all outside the uh, the country because they could get, you know, they could do a movie on a lower budget. Right. So and plus I had children that I had to raise and so forth. So okay, Invasion USA is one of my favorites. I love that movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they actually had the helicopters and tanks and everything in downtown Atlanta during that those scenes. Really, it was amazing. Oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah. 
So is that something, I mean, now when you did that, is that something that you ever thought of before meeting Chuck getting into the movies or was that kind of something he, you, you thought of after, after getting to know him and working with him a lot? Well, actually working out with Chuck, um, you know, we, I, I work at Chuck's house, uh, in uh, Rolling Hills estate. I, that was when he had the little house. I tell people because, you know, he hadn't made a lot of money at that time and he was still, you know, moving up into where he was mm-hmm. and almost anybody would come by the house to work out. I mean, Bill Walsh always come, Richard Norton. You'd see Howard Jackson, of course, work out with us all the time, and and uh, Bob Wall. And, I mean, just anybody would be there. So I would go out for weeks at a time and stay at his house sometimes and stay with some other people in, in Torrance. But uh, part of our workout would be doing movie fight um, choreography where we, we would react to kicks and punches oh. and things like that. Okay. We do these circle drills like he did in the, in the octagon where you're surrounded by five or six people and you do all these moves in different directions. So. I mean, I learned how to do stunt fighting and stuff during those times. I'd be working out with him and whoever was there. So it's pretty easy for me. But, you know, they can teach you to take a shot and, you know, how to react to a punch to the gut or a kick to the head and stuff. I know he broke my ribs in Code of Silence. When we did that fight scene with the uh, front kick to the uh, stomach. And he almost hit me with a spinning heel kick to the head. But I kind of dodged that one a little bit. But, <laughs> but he does he does have good control. But, you know, you do get hurt a little bit out there mm-hmm. doing those things. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It was nice. I mean, if I didn't have other obligations and commitments, I would have went, you know, overseas and missing in action, all that stuff. And, you know, if you're a stunt man, you don't make a lot of money, but it's right. still a good living. Yeah, definitely. Thinking back to like when you first started, you know, how do you think this, the, the training has changed? A typical class in like the late 70s, early 80s versus nowadays? If you're asking about tradition as opposed to what it is now, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm trying to get my thoughts together because, you know, I, I taught traditional i mean right it's like you, if you were in a japanese tournament which i w- was after i got out of tong suit and went to the open tournaments and you know one of my ambitions was to win a national championship and or world championship in different styles and i mean your, your basics when you start with the basic whether it's a forward stance or in a middle punch or a front kick i mean every technique has to be perfected i mean you chamber you kick you recoil you sit down i mean everything's power uh with power and focus and speed and execution and after teaching for about 25 years in my school almost every decade i noticed a deterioration in my students um, performance and execution and and the turn going to the tournaments because people didn't concentrate on the basics they didn't build a good foundation to work off of so they wanted to learn more in less time so you know what you have there is nothing but i always call it a a conglomeration of slop (laughs) i got so discouraged with my students that i had to uh, i had to my curriculum i had to cut it probably down uh, in a third that i used to teach just because students were going to other soccer going to play pianos or whatever i mean they didn't commit themselves i mean they maybe would come to the studio three hours a week and, you know, you can't perfect your, your even over three years, you can't perfect technique properly like that in a traditional system. So I got discouraged with it. I said, instead of me lowering my standards, I'm going to quit teaching. And there was times I'm in tournaments and I just couldn't stand. It. I said, I can't go back to the tournaments. So, you know, if I fast forward from that to, to what I see today in these tournaments, I mean, I go to our tournaments in Vegas and Battle of Atlanta. And everybody wants to do, you know, it's like a bow staff. I mean, a bow staff is a wooden staff that you use for self-defense and other things, and it's a traditional weapon. But now they have these little light uh, aluminum things that you can twirl like a baton. Yep. And, these, you know, it looks great, and it looks flashy, and they do these 360-degree kicks or 470s, and they do aerial and everything, and it's nothing more than, you know, it's, it's entertaining. 
But if you really break down what they're doing, that the fundamentals are not there. The stances, the execution and power, it's more for show. So, it, I mean, all the studios now is turned in. It has to be fun. If it's not fun, the kids will leave. And they have to have these uh, play things that they do. And you have to have birthday parties. And you do that. And that's how they make money. If you run a strict traditional school now in America, there are very few of them. Yep. We'll stay open as far as financial because nobody wants to work that hard. I train in traditional Taekwondo. That's my core style. And my instructor has told me so many times that if, if he taught classes like he did in the 80s and 90s, he wouldn't have any students, which is no, kind no, of sad. No, not at all. <laughs> no, there's the attention span's not there. The discipline's not there. The dedication, the sacrifice. Nobody would know. I mean, my own kids, they, they have no idea what it's like to have to go through that to achieve things that we did. They just think it's given to you. You just walk through and it's given. And it's just not that way. It's, I get frustrated. Like I said, I, I've, I walk out and close my studio. I said, I'm just not going to do it anymore because I was so frustrated. My students wouldn't do it, didn't care. They were dropping out if I'm pushing too hard. I mean, when they, you know, and I started teaching in 1971. I was teaching like the Marine Corps boot camp. They stood at attention. They they did everything perfectly. They, they didn't blink an eye. They didn't breathe nothing. They were afraid to move. But they were good. I turned out national champions, and they they were great. And we were very successful with that. You know, I, I had a little stick. I would tap them on the legs or, you know, a bamboo stick and things like that. And, and you know, nowadays you're afraid because of civil liability. If somebody gets hurt, if somebody touches somebody in the wrong way, I mean, it's just the world has changed. Right. I love teaching seminars because I go into town, I teach for a couple of days, and I leave and I'm gone. So I don't have liability, you know, of doing anything. And I don't, but I can tell you this, I've been teaching all over the world until I had my uh, a heart attack three years ago and suffered a stroke that set me back. And, uh, you know, the black belts, even in this country and other countries, they come in wearing black belts. And they're, they really are not any better than a white belt when they used to train in the 70s and 80s. I'm thinking, well, how did you get that black belt? Everything they did, they could do a lot of stuff, but everything they did was sloppy. And I always told them, I would rather, if you know, know five to seven moves perfectly and not, not have to think about them and be able to defend yourself and learn 100 moves that you can't think of and can't use. I mean, it's just a waste of time. So over the recent years, the only thing I teach is just reality-based things, something they can learn quick, something they can uh, comprehend quickly and also be effective in real situations. I, I quit trying to teach um, tradition, even though I still have the system and they go through the forms that they want. But I do have a reality-based uh, system called the Danny Lane Fighting System, which is nothing more than the Marine Corps techniques I use and uh, least defensive tactics I use and also, you know, from Tong Su to Honju don't jujitsu and, and aikido things okay. that i've learned that i think are practical and, and easy i mean i've been in enough street fights as a cop and in the marines and also that i know what works and what don't work i mean what works for me and what won't work out there i just try to simplify it. and you know still people won't practice the repetition they'll just do it you know maybe 20 or 30 times and they think they've learned it well what's the next technique <laughs> and then you know, just like the handgun technique i mean you do them thousands of times you know, with your eyes open, with your eyes closed. I mean, you, you learn it to, there's no thinking process. If you, if you have to think, it's too late. What, what I was always taught and what I remember. I know I've had the conversation. Think, I've had, you know, female friends that have taken like the one day self-defense seminar. I'm like, it's not, gonna yeah. do, it's not going to do you any good. A year from now, you're not going to remember what you learned for one hour on a Saturday afternoon at the YMCA. I mean, it's, it's repetition. You got to practice that technique hundreds, if not thousands of times for it to actually work and become muscle memory. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I always said, you know, there's five levels of, of training. You have the physical, you start out with the physical and the mental, and then there's the emotional, then there's the psychological, and then there's the spiritual. I mean, and then you, you go through each one of those phases over a period of time of training. It's not something maybe it's laid out in a, 
notebook or a manual, but something, the transition from being physical to the mental, where you're, you're thinking and doing things in the physical and, and the mental. I mean, you're doing things pretty much at the same time. Because, you know, you, have, you can have all the training in the world. I've seen that in the Marine Corps. I've seen it in combat over there. I've seen it in the police department where people think that they know stuff. But when the pressure comes over and you're in a life and death situation, if you don't have the emotional part down that you can uh, react under fire and, uh, you know, react and do something and then think about it later, you're going to get killed or you're going to get hurt. So that's even when I taught police academies and I've taught the uh, Secret Service in D.C., mm-hmm. I've taught the FBI, I've taught U.S. Marshals, and I've taught all kinds of people all over in this country. And it's not about teaching them how many techniques, but it's teaching you just a few techniques that you learn and you'll never forget. And uh, it's something you can do spontaneously without any thought process, because if you have to t- think, it's uh, too late. It's like uh, gun disarming techniques. They have to be done within one half of a second, not even a second. Yep. If you can touch, if you can touch a gun, you know, if it's in the back, it's going to be a little bit low, but as long as you carry the gun or the knife, you'll have a chance. But actions faster than reaction. So if you act, the time they react to your action, you have them. If you don't have them in that first second or a half, then it's too late sometimes. So I always worked on those techniques on so many repetitions and then it gets down to where, well, you, you think about it and then you, you, you do it and then you think about it later. It's like, okay, I know that was pretty good. <laughs> nice. I know I, I interviewed uh, James DeMaio uh, last year, one of Bruce Lee's original students before he passed away. And that's one thing he said when, you know, Bruce was training back then, he worked on three or four techniques. He called it your toolbox. Those are the, the four tools that could get you out of almost any situation. You perfected those tools. And so all of his students yeah. had, and they weren't the same for every student. It was, it was based on the student. You have the, these four or five tools that'll work for you. And this guy has three or four or five that'll work for him and you perfect your toolbox. So it's kind of, kind of the same yeah. type of thing. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I always related to a street fighter. I mean, a good street fighter, and, and, and I've seen a lot of them when I was a cop because nobody likes to bleach. And we always had our, our guys in, in, in town that were just great street fighters. And no matter how hard you hit them with your nightstick or your, your fist or whatever, you know, you had to bring your lunch to take them down. But those guys would have maybe three or four techniques, you know, as long as they got a sucker punch or they got something. I mean, they don't have a hundred techniques. They may have three or four. Mm-hmm. And the most the most dangerous thing about them is their mindset. They want to hurt you. And uh, their intent is to hurt you or kill you. And it's just their mindset. It, it doesn't have to be about technique at all. If a person has the m- right mindset, it's like in the Marine Corps, they, you know, they train us so much like the mindset of a warrior. And no matter what pain you have and what situation you have, you can overcome and adapt to whatever situation is. And you don't need a bunch of techniques. You just need to know what you know very good. Nice. Well, change directions a little bit. Uh, you kind of mentioned uh a little bit, you, you mentioned your, your first books, some gave it all. I'm curious what, what led to writing the first book and what led to you wanting to become an author? Oh, that's a real good question. too. <laughs> you know, most, uh, most combat, I mean, there's a lot of veterans, but a lot of veterans that go into combat, I'm talking about on the ground, hand to hand, and you're, you as a young 19 and 20 year old, uh, young man going into combat, having to kill people and you have to kill or be killed. And, put out in a jungle situation with a squad or a platoon or a company of people and you're, you know, in the jungle and you're fighting people, it's even better than you in the jungle warfare and so forth. So, I mean, when you, a lot of people come out of combat, they have post-traumatic stress, they have anxiety. And a lot of people don't talk about their war experiences. I didn't for 50 years, but it's destroyed a lot of my uh, personal life. It's um, causing me a lot of anxiety and was causing me trouble uh, in my personal life. Same thing with my wife. She, she, you know, she understood it, but at the same time, she was trying to help me. She said, "Why don't you just write, write it out, and so forth?" Because I wasn't 
comfortable going to therapy. And, you know, the Veterans Administration did have us going to therapy uh, after we got home for a long time and, and so forth. But uh, anyway, I was still having trouble with it. Nightmares, not sleeping, and I, so much anxiety that it causes us, you know, the nightmares never go away. And no matter what you see, what you do in combat, it never leaves your mind. It's like there's a saying there for the Vietnam people, you know, your your body may have come home, but your mind's still over there. And so, so many people, so many Vietnam veterans particularly committed suicide. I mean, there's up to estimated up to 20 or 21 a day still kill themselves, the ones that's left. And I've been there at certain times where I just couldn't handle the uh, mental pressure, no matter what. And, you know, you go to veterans, they want to put you on medication and it doesn't help. It doesn't make it go away. So anyway, I started writing the book in 2016 of all my combat missions and after boot camp and the relationships I developed and a lot of the missions I were on was on and uh, started putting it on the page and I had a co-writer that had been published author before, Mark Bowser, who saw on the cover. And I started writing, writing, writing and writing, you know, police stories and writing all this stuff out. So, you know, you know I had a lot of tears coming out and a lot of memories uh, writing it, but it um, finally got done. I, it's really weird how things happen. I was signed by, you know, a publishing house, uh, some made for success in Seattle, Washington, uh, published the book and it come out on May the 1st, 2018. And in May, on May the 1st, 2018, I was in um, the Veterans Hospital for the possible heart attack. So I couldn't even enjoy the release of my book. Oh, wow. And, uh, they finally sent me home and said, well, you know, um, your heart looks good. We just think you have this excess, uh, anti-acid. And so I want you to take the, uh, Vanadine a little bit more. So. I come home and I kept getting increasingly uh, worse the next nine days. So on May the 10th, I had a massive heart attack, almost died, and they had to do open heart surgery uh, on me at 3 o'clock in the morning. They found two blocked arteries in there that the Veterans Hospital didn't find nine days earlier. Wow. So scary. I started writing it actually for self-therapy and to put it on the page and face it and try to deal with it and put it behind me. And that was very successful. And, you know, annoyingly to me, the book got, got to number one on Amazon and then Chuck Norris endorsed it and he wrote a big uh three-page review of it on, on his uh, Twitter account. Nice. And uh, then all, all, a lot of people got behind it, and it just did real well. So, you know, I'm writing the one about my a lot of my police murder cases and stuff when I was a detective now called Some Gave It All Bro- Brothers in Blue, which is the sequel oh. to Some Gave It All Through the Fire of the Vietnam War. Okay. It can be found on Amazon, Books A Million. Um, it's all over the place. Uh, it can be downloaded in Audiobook, Nook, uh, Kindle. He's in all, all the formation. Um, I mean, not formation, but uh, different all, versions all the formats, of it. Yeah. When does the new yeah, one? Format. When does the new one come out? Well, I can, I'm so critical of what I'm writing now. I keep <laughs> going back and editing. I'm not. I'm about halfway through it, so maybe by the end of the year, I'm hoping. Okay. With it, with this one, the old murder case that I have, I had to go back and I'm trying to get the uh, the clerk to get the original files out of the archives, and I'm waiting for. There's a lot of information there. They were in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. Most of the murder cases I worked. After that, though, I've been a private detective for um, 42 years. I've worked over 200 murder cases uh, during that. So there's a lot of murder cases I can work on. I'm probably going to do one book just on my most uh, unique ones. Okay. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. That's That'll be a good one. I'll be watching for that. And, and I'll definitely put a link for your other one on the podcast show notes when it comes out, too. So Well, the... Uh, SomeGaveItAll.com, you can go there and get all kinds of previews. I've done EV, uh, interviews and television uh, appearances with a lot of people. There's links to that, uh, endorsements. Uh, like I said, previews. There's other combat missions uh, from other Marines on there. And so at uh, SomeGaveItAll.com, you can order the book there, and they, they come directly to me, and they'll be autographed and sent out if somebody wants an autograph one. Oh, cool. Yeah, I will put that link on there. Great. Yeah, so 
What advice would you give people who are looking to get involved in martial arts for the first times and they're, they're, they know nothing about it and they're just kind of wondering what, what, are, what are one or two things they should look for in a school and an instructor and maybe something to avoid? Well, I guess the first thing would be the, uh, how long the school has been open there and what, their, um, what the opinion is of, of people that's went there before and always go in and ask for a free week of lessons or anything like that, see if you enjoy it. And it, you know, it depends if people go there for self-defense. I mean, parents should send their children there to learn discipline mm-hmm. and to learn how to obey rules and regulations and what ethics are and what uh, rules are and how to follow those and to teach them the discipline to that. The first thing that they would learn there is how to listen. And if they, if they stand still long enough and they keep their ears open and their mouth shut, they'll learn how to get all this knowledge and so forth. And then just, you know, I always thought, always, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking everybody that when they get out of high school should have to go to the military at least for six months or something like that. Okay. Just to go through a boot camp. I mean, just to appreciate what it was about. That's why the children today and the teens and, and the people in the 20s and 30s, they have no discipline. They have their head, they have their mind and their iPhones and stuff. They have, they, their attention span is, is very limited. And uh, I don't know, that's why I see a deterioration in our, in our society, in America. There's a lack of respect. There's a lack of understanding. There's a lack of, of, of those just core issues that we, we grew up with. I know, of course, I'm 73, so I grew up in the country and you know, and life was simpler at those times and life was easier and life was better. And I mean, I love technology. I do. I have a really giant screen and I love sports and mm-hmm. I do computer work. I do my own website designing and stuff. And I love computers. But, you know, I just think there's a time to have them, time not, especially with children, that they can really get the core values of what life's all about and what's important. Yeah, definitely. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, mandatory military service. And I know I've had conversations before with guests about mandatory martial arts training in schools. Now, did you work much with Chuck Norris on his, you know, kick drugs out of America program where it was actually, I can't remember how many schools in Texas he had it in, but I know it was mandatory. I think it was like sixth through eighth grade mandatory martial arts training. And he had like six or 700 kids in that program for a while, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, they, they call it kickstart now. Yeah. Um, kick drugs out of America started when he, uh, president Bush senior was in, uh, the White House. That's when I went over and, and trained the uh, Secret Service and handgun disarming as well. And um, I was with him when he initiated that. A lot of my black belts and a lot of black belts that trained with me still work down in Texas in the Kick Drug Program, nice. the Kickstart Program. And um, they've got thousands now in that. And part, actually, 5% royalties of my book, when it came out, I donated to Kickstart. And oh, it wow. just goes straight to the, the royalties for, for the endorsement. Okay. So, yeah, it's a phenomenal thing uh, where he tries to keep these kids out of the gangs and off the drugs and everything. Uh, Chuck is very passionate about that. But, I'd love yeah, to, I'd love to see that go nationwide someday. I, I wish that. I know that was his goal initially, and I'd love to but see that. It almost that. did. We got them in Chicago and Detroit at one time in, in school. I don't really know what happened, why they, the money wasn't coming in enough to keep yep. it open or what happened. But he's pretty much just focused on Texas now. Yep. And all the money that comes in is through fundraising and stuff that we do and, and other schools do and, 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 and like that. So, I mean, it's, it's really, it really should be required because if it was and people would stay out of gangs and off drugs and things like that, it's just all about discipline and respect, you know, integrity and uh, loyalty as the four key words of the Chuck Norris system. And nice. we've always went by those four key words. Nice. Nice. So now you, for most of your career, you've primarily been a traditional martial artist, as you said. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on like MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan? Well, I'm a fan. Actually, the first, uh, you, the first, uh, eight UFC that I was with uh, Michael D. Pasquale uh, Jr. He had the Karate International uh, magazine, and he and I, uh, I was actually the programmer and stuff. We did the uh, first web thing for America Online. We had the uh, 
our church worldwide network on America Online, and I programmed and did all that. And we did uh, chat rooms, and we were the first ones to do live streaming video uh, around the world on pay-per-view with the uh, UFC. And I forget the guy's name, but he was from New York. He owned it. He's the one that ended up selling it to the people that uh, Dana White worked for. So I I love it. I was there during the initial ones when, you know, Hoist Gracie was there and all those guys. And we did ringside commentation chats. And and like I said, we eventually went to streaming video and pay-per-view and, you know, technology was still dial up back then. It wasn't high speed. <laughs> yep. so it was hard hard to stream, um, you know, uh, high def video to the to the internet uh, and video in the uh, around the world. But we did it, and you know, it was pretty successful. And and I so I was in, instrumental in helping get that moving. You know, because we with America Online, that was the the original like Facebook now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was chat rooms and all that, and doing the chats and. Mm-hmm. We could uh, we were narrating the uh, blow below online. We had five people that could that type real fast doing that blow below, and <laughs> that uh, people on America online could see what was going on. And things so it was real real cool. Nice. So is any of that uh, stuff still out there? Like, can you still find like your guys' blow below commentary? No, uh, I've always looked for it. I keep searching for it. That would be cool to see I mean, just there, to read through it. it. Yeah, but I, I like MMA. I mean, I watch the fights and stuff and. You know, but you know these these guys are in it for the money now, but and they do make really good money. I yep. mean, you know, back then they were paying fighters like ten thousand or something to piece, but they make really good money. And I like it. I just don't like it when they get it. You know, get in a clinch or to get down on the ground, and the, the whole fight is there. I know that's the strategy and it's a way to win, but I don't know. I, I think American kickboxing and things like that's coming back. These channels and there's so. more excitement. There's more skill. And, I mean, I don't think the the kids, and I don't think people can identify with their champions because they don't stay champion long enough to it's like a bill wallace bill's almost 80 <laughs> years old and people around the world still um oh yeah um connect with him because he can kick you in the head three different ways yep you know i mean he's you know bill and i are the best of friends we've trained all kinds of times we spar all kinds of times and i i there's two ways you can get away from bill is you get straight into his chest where he can't get to you or just stay real far away <laughs> <laughs> i always could sweep him but you know he has a bad leg he has that bad leg so i don't want to sweep him so I, you know he's amazing he has he does a uh every wednesday night he has a class that he's home and he's got all kinds of people oh, wow. on zoom you know logs in takes his class so now were you yeah. involved at all with the, the the world combat league when chuck was trying to get that going because i loved that mm-hmm. i wish that would have really took off no, I wasn't. No. Okay. Because that was kind of, kind of the thing that was basically kickboxing, like old school kickboxing, and it was so fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I got a Samsung television. I guess there's a free channels come with it, and there's all kinds of those kickboxing things. They're in some kind of a sunken mat area or something, and they, they just go at it. I mean, nice. it's coming back. And, and you know, it's, there's, it's a different type of athlete. Mm hmm. Definitely. Joe Corley's been trying to bring back the PKA, and yep. we talked about it a lot. I mean, we get together with you know Joe Corley and J- Jeff Smith and uh, Don Willis and all these guys. We've been talking about and come bringing it back and the whole thing over. I'm not really sure what's going up. We went to Canada and there was some people a couple months ago and trying to get some TV deals done or something like that. Yeah, Joe talked about that when he was on my show, and I mean, he said he'd keep me updated. So I'm hoping I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it happens. So that'd be awesome to see. Yeah, me. Cool, cool. I was actually watching uh, Joe Lewis doing some sparring with one of my black belts on uh, showed up on my uh, Facebook. You know how they they yep. show these little videos now. And, oh yeah, nice, nice. So who would you put on your martial arts Mount Rushmore? And it doesn't have to be four. 
but who were maybe a couple, two or three or four that you'd put on your Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Well, I had the pleasure of working extensively with everyone. Of course, Chuck would be number one because I've worked with him more and I'm loyal to him. And mm-hmm. Joe Lewis would be the second because Joe's always been a good friend of mine. He's an uh, ex-Marine and so forth, and he's always wanted me to be in his system. And, you know, I get, didn't get a chance to go do that, but the, the one that took over his system is still is trying to get me in it. And that's one of my things I want to do is, you know, be certified with Joe. And then, of course, Bill has been a great friend with me and, and tutored me along the way. And then, you know, underneath that, probably Keith Vitale. I could probably put about 20 or 30 on there. <laughs> Howard, Howard Jackson and I worked together, and I stayed with Howard a lot in L.A., and we trained a lot. And his boxing and kickboxing is, was so good. And he's a former Marine as well. And Some good answers as on far that. As nice. Bob, Robert McEwen. Okay. I studied, I've done seminars with and studied Bob was uh, the uh, Nyangoshi Nikito for about 30 years which I'm a second degree in. It took me 21 years to get my first degree wow. in the uh, Neon Negotiation. Of course, you know, I just studied here and there, and I would yeah. see him do it. At seminars. But then I started getting his videos and stuff, and almost everything I do is uh, Neon Goshen Aikido and small circle jiu-jitsu from Wally J that mm-hmm. I learned a lot from. But I've learned from so many people right. that, you know, but I had this saying, if you just learn one thing, from one seminar that you go to, it'll be worth it. If, if you put it into your, like you say, toolbox, Yep and develop it and perfect it, it'll work for you. So when I would go to seminars, if I wasn't teaching, I would be listening and watching and trying to learn. Well, you don't have to learn a hundred things in a seminar, but if you learn that one thing, it could save your life. And one thing, my, my gunnery sergeant told me that when I left uh, Paris Island and boot camp going to ITR and getting ready to go to Vietnam, he said he was a big, tall, black uh, drill instructor. And I didn't think he liked anybody because he screamed at us and beat us all the time. But he stopped me when I was going out the door to get on the bus to go to Camp Lejeune. He said, Lane, I think you're going to make it. Just remember, that one thing can always save your life. And that's kind of in my book, and uh, some gave it all. It's always that one thing that will save your life. You don't know what it is. Yep. It'll always show up on time and, and, and serve you well if you learn it. Nice. Thinking back over, over your, your whole martial arts career, is there one philosophy you've learned that really stands out that comes to the top that you keep coming back to? I may have just said <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking as soon as you said that. I'm like, that kind of leads to this question, and maybe that's the answer, which is fine. You know, I, I'll kind of follow that up because, I mean, there was a lot of situations when I was top, and I'm not overly big and wasn't overly strong, but I was fast. But, you know, if there's one what's coming into my head right now. My uh, partner and I, and he was a, uh, a black patrolman, and he trained with me as well. I mean, he was a good boxer, Austin uh, Harrison. And we had a guy in a family dispute, but he, when we went in with a domestic uh, dispute, this guy backed up and he had a shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun pointed at us. Well, because we didn't have our guns out at that time, but... You know, the family was screaming, there was kids, there was this lady screaming that he was terrorizing with. I guess this guy was drunk or having some mental issues. But I'm thinking, okay, if I can just get close enough to him and just keep getting calmed down. But I'm pretty quick with that, that little skip sidekick, you know, a shuffle or a slide up or however you want to say it. But mm-hmm. I can, I, if I can get that range just enough that I can get there, I know I can knock him. I can kick him all the way up in the air and knock that shotgun out of his hand. Not, <laughs> If I can get, just kick him in the chest, you got to kick higher than the uh, the belly button because if you kick high, the people come forward. But if you kick low, he'll bend over. So I need I need to get him in the chest. So I'm just thinking that that one thing that I could think of. I'm gonna sidekick this guy so hard <laughs> he's that guy's gonna follow me. And I didn't know if it would happen or not, but that's the only thing I had going in. And all of a sudden I went bam, I kick and. And I was just talking to Austin the other day. He's down in South Carolina, and uh, I'm writing a bunch of stories with him in my new book. 
a guy, you know, blew up in the air. His shoes come off of him. That <laughs> shotgun went up in the air, and and he went flying over a, a table, and it broke and everything. And then I had him, you know, with my gun pointed at him, and he, he said, I'll, I give up. I don't want to be beaten no more. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I think, okay, yeah, because I'm always thinking, I, well, you know, you got to hit first. If you don't hit first, you're not going to win most of the time. If you get hit first, it, it's all it's over, and you're going to get disorientated or hurt. Mm-hmm. Or knocked out. So I'm, another philosophy is you got to hit first to win. I mean, if a fight's going to get on you, you don't hit them first. You you have less of a less of a chance of winning. So situations like that, I always have that one thing. What I'm going to do? Back fist, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. I call them leadoff techniques. I did a, a seminar with Big uh, John Morrison down in Houston. I taught him a private lesson. It's on uh, the internet. And he's uh, about six four and about two hundred and eighty. I was talking about leadoff techniques. So every time he would move on me, I would hit him with something and have it, you know, my defense. So I always thought, well, if that guy moved on me with a back fist or a karate chop, or there was another story I had where I was pulling this guy over to give him a ticket for speeding. And he was in a high powered Mustang, which was great, but he was just speeding through this neighborhood. And he was so arrogant and things. And he said, I'm not going to sign the ticket and things like that. And he was getting real arrogant. And, um, I took the ticket back to his car and he wouldn't take it. And during the course, you know, he pulled out and he almost ran over me. Wow. And so I got in my, my car and started chasing him. I chased him out of the city limits and my ship commander was telling me to come back, come back. It's not a felony. You can't chase somebody. And I, I'm thinking what I said to him, I thought, you're breaking up. I can't understand you. Can you repeat? There was no way I was going to not come back. I chased this guy for 50 miles oh, wow. out of my city, uh, out of the city limits. Up a gravel road on a country road where I had no radio transmission or nothing. And he finally wrecked his car and then started smoking. Well, here's me with my red lights on on this country road, on gravel country road, just me and him. And I order him out of the car. He comes out of the car, but I can't see him. He won't, he won't show me his hand. So I finally walk a little bit closer. And I'm thinking, okay, I had a gun. I put the gun in my left hand, put it on my hip, because I'm, I'm kind of right handed. So just as soon as he, uh, I got close to him, he moved with his hand. I hit him with a karate chop. <laughs> Right in the throat. Well, he went down immediately and uh, started quivering and everything like he was convulsing. I'm thinking, okay, I done killed this guy. So I sat down on the road and he was shaking. I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? And uh, finally he come to. I didn't put the cuffs on him or anything. I thought he was dead. I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, I could kill this guy. I party chopped him. But finally he come to. And he started cussing me and everything again. So I knocked him out that time with the right cross. <laughs> I put the cuffs on him, put him in the back. So I learned something. The rest of my whole career, I never karate chopped at anybody anywhere because it was too dangerous. Oh, but I knew yeah. it worked. Wow. No, you know what? I didn't hit him in the throat. I hit him on the carotid, right on the side of the neck. Ooh. And probably on the badger's nerve that ran through there. Anyway, he went out. I mean, he went out like a light and he started quivering with his feet and things. I'm thinking, okay. So then I had to put him in the back of the car and drive back there, you know, and put him in jail. He hadn't heard from me for hours. I didn't know where the car was. I didn't know the name of the road or anything. So anyway, but it was kind of like one of those one things I did that I kind of regret. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> I got a, I got a few more fun ones to wrap it up. Now, these last few, you can't pick something you've been involved in. So do you have a favorite martial arts book? Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, Richard uh, Duke Turchell wrote a book. It's still out there now called The Chuck Norris System. So I have a copy of it. And that's kind of like our Bible that we started out with. It had the basic techniques, the tongue forms, and all that stuff in it. So. Okay. I don't read very many martial arts books at all. Um, I don't even think there's, I don't even know of any. Okay. I'm sure there's a lot out there. I mean, they have these Hall of Fames and they have the, um, you know, the world's greatest martial arts things. And I mean, all these things that come out in the, the encyclopedia and who's yep. who and, and things like that. I'm in all those. Yeah. 
and I support all of them, but it, I mean, I don't read them for excitement or enjoyment. It's just a documentation. It's like the Hall of Fames. I mean, there's so many Hall of Fames now, and and I get invited to all those Hall of Fames, and, and you know, there's so many that it just depends on which ones are legitimate and which ones you want to be be in, because right. a lot of the Hall of Fames are more for money making for some people, and then hollering because I see people coming getting Hall of Fame awards for certain things in certain categories, and they don't even deserve them. So it kind of I'm kind of torn about that. I, I support those and I like those people and, and people mm-hmm. should be, but there's no way to fact check. A lot of these people are getting these awards because they'll go back in their hometown and say, hey, you got inducted into the World Martial Arts Hall of Fame or this Hall of Fame or this Hall of Fame. Everybody thinks they're good and they, you know, they might not be trained at all or certified at all. There is no fact checking organization in this country that fact checks everybody. And you can go on Facebook and people are bad mouthing and fact checking everybody. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can make a comment about anything on, on Facebook, and there's so many people in there that have different opinions. They'll come back bashing you with their style, that style, this, that, and the other. And you, you can put something on there. Well, you get killed doing that. Well, you should do it this way. Then I'll go watch their techniques, and it's, I feel kind of the same way. So I kind of just stay silent. I don't get involved in it. So I don't post anymore too much. I do post a lot of my training videos online because I want people that are following me to at least learn something. So if it's simple. Yeah. And, and they can learn it quick and fast and easy. That it's it's made its uh, mark. Okay. All right. Good. Two two more fun ones. Uh, favorite martial arts TV show? I watch reruns of Walker Texas Ranger three hours a day because I've been like I said having a lot of medical issues, so yep. I kind of have to stay home. And yeah, I know it went from 1990 to uh, 1999, nine years. I watch him every day. And, you know, the more I watch him, the more I realize Chef is a pretty good actor. Oh, yeah. I love that. It's a great show. I, st- I Same thing. I still watch reruns. I tried watching the new one, but it's Walker without martial arts is just not right. So <laughs> I just could not watch the new one. I haven't watched the first one of that one. I, um, of course, I get to see a lot of my old friends in there. That's uh, some of the stunt guys and stuff. And that's yep. a lot of choreography and stuff. And the stuff that we did back in the old days. And it's always funny because, you know, I've been a real cop. And it's just... Yep. And... Um, the Texas Rangers can come in and there'll be six or eight people and some of them with guns and stuff, but they'll, they'll fight for a long time, you know, and then they, they end up sometimes they, you know, they don't take them to jail at all. They just say, all right, get out of here. <laughs> 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 I mean, you get people spinning hill kicks and yep. you drop them and things like that. And get out of here. <laughs> it's real funny. But, uh, nice. Nice. You know, I have one story with you. Actually, uh, I was with Chuck when he was reading the uh, pilot uh, scripts for three different types of uh, shows to do on TV. So I actually read the original um, scripts that was sent to Chuck. He got them when we were down in Houston doing sidekicks. He was okay. going to do this television series. So I read it. The Walker, it wasn't called Walker, Texas Ranger at that time, but it was a Texas Ranger. What made me think of it was it kind of was the same character he did in Lone Wolf McQuaid, which yep. was the uh, Texas Ranger. Exactly. Yep. And another one was him being a cop, almost like, uh, I forget that guy's name. Dennis Weaver did the show there in New York City. He was a Texas oh. Ranger or something. He had to go to yep. New York City and do it. I forget the name of the thing. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I told Chuck my opinion. I said, I think this one fits you, you know, being a Texas Ranger. Chuck's from Oklahoma, so he's a country boy anyway. Yep. Nice. And final one, and uh, once again, can't pick one that you've been involved in. What Do you have a favorite martial arts movie? Mm-hmm. Well, is it going to be, I mean, is it going to be worldwide, like the uh, the Kung Fu type movies? Oh, yeah. or just, Any, you, anything uh, you want to pick, yep. <laughs> I'll pick Code of Silence because I was in it. That was my first one. <laughs> okay. How, how about one that you weren't in? Um, of Shucks or just anybody? Any, any martial arts movie. I'm trying to think of the name of some of them. But, uh, 
I guess Enter the Dragon is a classic. I mean, oh, I've, yeah. I've watched it a number of times, and you know, the one with Bob Wall in it and things yep. like that. Love so. that movie. Yep. That's a good answer. Yeah. I, I think about seven of my guests have picked that one, so there's nothing wrong with that one either. <laughs> no, I didn't get a chance to meet Bruce. I mean, he passed before I got to meet him, but he just lived about a, two blocks from Chuck. Mm-hmm. He lived close enough to Chuck would walk over to his house and train, but I did meet uh, his wife, and I did, did meet Brandon. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was actually in was actually in L.A. at Chuck. Chuck had a restaurant down in. Uh, um, what was it? Anyway, he had a restaurant. His uh, former wife had a restaurant down there, and I was out visiting and saying we had a. a uh, and Brandon did the movie uh, Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. You know the, re- the remake on Kung Fu. I was there for his uh, party and stuff, and met him and things like that. It was so unfortunate what happened to him and Bruce, but. Uh, that was a great movie. I think I've, I've watched it a number of times, and yeah, the choreography and everything. And you know, I know that they they are just best. I mean, they're doing choreography over there, so it's really a classic I like. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to interview at least three people who who knew and uh, who knew Bruce Lee, who trained with Bruce Lee, and so it's yeah, it's cool hearing those stories and stuff, but. I just want to say, man, this has been such an honor to have you on the show. I know we've been trying for a while and the schedule's been kind of crazy and stuff, but I, I, I so appreciate your time and I, I've enjoyed this so much hearing your stories. Well, sometimes I have to re- reach deep into my mind, especially I'm still in medication with all this medical issues and my memory sometimes is very vivid and sometimes it's, I've been fortunate to be among all those people uh, coming from a little country town in West Virginia and, and uh, you know, a lot of people, you don't know where you're going in life. You just kind of ride with it. You know, I didn't know I was going to the Marine Corps. I didn't know I was going to be a cop. I didn't know I was going to get in martial arts. I didn't know I was going to have a martial arts studio. I didn't know I was going to win any championships or meet Chuck Norris and get in some of his movies and meet all these people. One thing I know about all the people I've met all over the world. I mean, we're all human beings. We all can be vulnerable. We all put our pants on the same way, especially the men. And and, uh, you know, you have to ride that wave. And when op- opportunity knocks, you have to jump in with both feet. So you have to be prepared. I mean, there are setbacks along the way. There's all kinds of obstacles in every way. There's nothing easy to accomplish. And like I said, when when a door does open, uh, you have to be prepared with whatever you have to jump in with both feet and make the, your dreams come true. So nothing I've ever accomplished in life is something I pre-planned. It was just a part of a journey that I've rode and, and uh, went down different journeys. But I do get signs. I do get times. That it's like when I left the police department. I was losing my edge. I was losing my instinct. I've been on for 15 years. I was disappointed. I went back to being on a patrol from uh, being a homicide detective because of this murder case I worked at. It uh, didn't come out in my favor. And uh, I lost faith in the justice system and my heart wasn't in being a cop anymore. As a result of that, I was losing my uh, edge, my uh, mindset. And I almost got shot in my last week of being on the force three different times on burglaries and armed robberies where I walked in on people made a mistake, didn't see him, and they could have shot me. They had guns right on me, and they didn't shoot me. And, and uh, I heard this word, I guess, I'm, I'm sure it was from God. He said, it's time to go. But I went in and, and resigned, put my budget, my badge down, and, and, and left. Wow. So, uh, I mean, it was very powerful. I mean, I wanted, you know, it's time to go. And I knew I was losing my edge. I knew I was making mistakes. And after 15 years of being a cop, I didn't want to die out there with some pump shooting me when I went through a door, and he was hiding behind it and, and had a gun right on me. I think you made the, the right choice, though. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always a time to to go, and you just have to know when it's time. And you listen to the signs, and you just go. And you might not know what to do, and you might not know where you're going, but you'll find it out if you have that discipline. And so, if you read my books, I've been homeless. I've been homeless as a team. Uh, as a team. Mm-hmm. I joined the Marine Corps to keep from going to jail, to keep from being a, a, a thief or a robber to support myself because I was broke, didn't have anywhere to go. That's how I ended up in the Marine Corps. Wow. 
in the Marine Corps and made me into a man. And when I come out, I just kind of kept growing with that. Discipline I learned in there that there's nothing going to be easy, but the hard, hard work and dedication, uh, you can do anything. I think that's a great way to end it. I, I Seriously, it's been yeah. an absolute honor. And, and uh, I will definitely, I'll send you the link when the episode's ready. And I will promote, like I said, I'll put your, your websites out there, your book and everything. And, and we'll promote it for you. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.